0: Hello, and welcome to episode 55 of the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, the third and final part of our little sub series around the stewardship of the Yugoslav FA of Savko Scheiber, Drawing a Blank. Our episodes covering the 1980s have had two key issues. First began this little sub series, Endemic Match Fixing and the second was the proliferation of draws in the nation. That issue was hardly one unique to Yugoslavia, to be fair. In the era of two points for a win and one for a draw, draws were more common, given that they were comparatively more valuable than they are under the three points for a win system we see pretty much everywhere now. However, with the match fixing issue existing also, Simply adopting a higher-stake gambit when it came to winning games wasn't necessarily something that would work in and of itself. So Slavko Ševa decided to go against the grain and tackle match-fixing all in one fell swoop. While it won't impact the season we're about to come up to but of 1987-88, it will come into effect at the end of this season and beyond. The hybrid solution was to, in effect, make fixing a game to be a draw impossible because there were no longer going to be any. Every game from the 1988 89 season on to the breakup of Yugoslavia itself would be impacted. If a game finished the 90 minutes with a draw, it would go into a penalty shootout, with the winner of that shootout getting one point and the loser getting none. In one way, it was a success in the 87-88 season there would be a total of 78 draws in the league the following season it would be 67 and the season after that 51. in another way from the perspective of fans it would create a lot of criticism because bluntly every draw was ending with penalties and when you have 51 or even 67 penalty shootouts per season in the league they soon lose their appeal and become a very, very silly idea. In our three episode tour through Scheiber's influence in Yugoslav football, our first episode called the scandal, our second, the fallout. And in this one, his attempts to fix the issues that rose from it. Draws were an issue in the league. There were seasons where of 34 games, 14 or more games for a side were draws some were of course suspicious and adding the wholly random nature of penalties to the mix was going to sort of eliminate fixing although as we'll get to in a few episodes time it didn't eliminate it entirely however it was a response that was disproportionate in that while the issues it aimed to fix were giant the method of doing so was the nuclear option and it will perhaps not surprise anyone to note that other nations didn't follow suit aside from the MLS but that's Americans and the concept of draws for you draws weren't the only thing for which this would be the final season the second league would be about to be reformed also after 30 years of the east-west format the second league was about to be reformed for the 88-89 season into one national league of 20 From two regional leagues of 18. While the immediate results of the season for our timeline are that Napleda Krusevac and Spartak Subotica would win in each region to get themselves in the first league for 88 89, nine sides would be relegated from each regional league also. Sort of. In the West, Olympia Ljubljana should. Relegated, but were spared it so as to keep a Slovenian team in the league and Iskra were relegated in their place, having finished the season safe. Iskra scored seven more goals across the season. Yugoslavia would actually have had a third-tier side playing in Europe the next season as the cup would see its greatest shock in its history. This season, Borac Luka would get themselves to the final, becoming only the second second second-league side to ever actually reach that stage. Not just that. Against Svane Svesta, they would go on and win the thing at the JNA 1-0 after a goal from their legendary striker Senad Lupic with a header around the hour mark. They would give away a penalty late and Pixi Stojkovic would step up and attempt to clip a Penenka straight down the middle. Keeper Slobodan Karolic, who had spent a season at Svesta without playing a few years prior, didn't even move. And the ball was gratefully collected in his midriff. All in all, it had taken Borac 14 games, 12 Rupic goals, 4 penalty shootouts, and a campaign of 370 days from the regional cups that lead into the Yugoslav Cup to reach immortality. How Borac were able to defeat Sviesta, was surprising at any time, but even more surprising given how Sviesta were doing elsewhere. The new Sviesta was starting to come through, and no clearer sign of that would be shown than the top scorer at the club that season being a certain penalty missing genius by the name of Dragan Stojkovic. Across the league, the season had started to see the generation from Chile come through. Robert Prasneci would make 23 league appearances that season. Svonimir Boban scored an impressive 13 goals, the same amount as Darko Panchev both of whom would lag behind Radz Dusko Milinkovic, who top-scored for the league. The title race itself would be a wide-open one based around a few special players. Svěvsa had Pixy, Vélez had Tus, Dinamo had Boban and Skoro, and Partizan had a veritable dynasty behind them, albeit one that had never quite received the accolades they felt were coming to them thanks to the fallout of Shiba's round. To add to that, there was intrigue in the dugouts as well. Svena fiesta were managed by Vela Bovacevic, Partizan by Faruddin Yusufi. Both, as we'll remember, of Partizan's babies and two people who, if you remember back 20 or 30 episodes, had their issues with each other in the past. Dinamo had Chiro Blazevic back in the dugout, while Vela's had their own legend back at the club, Enver Maric. And this season would perhaps be as close as Vela's would come to managing to win the title leading for much of the season before being overhauled at the top with three games to go, in spite of a famous early-season 5-0 demolition of Sviesta. At that point, only one point covered the top three, with Sviesta on top, followed by Vélez and Partizan, who were finishing the season in tremendous form. It would take until the penultimate round for things to be almost settled, with Sviesta pulling two points clear, but... Even then, they had a nervy two all draw on the final day against Socheska to navigate to secure things once and for all. Hajduk, meanwhile, were well off the pace in a season that attracted headlines for all the wrong reasons. Best spring saw them win only three games and get through three managers, most notably Ivan Vutsov, a Bulgarian who had joined from Spartak Pleven and would give Allen Boksic his break at Hajduk. Futsoft's relevance here is simply in not being Yugoslav because we get to the last of Scheiber's reforms, which was to permit foreigners to come into Yugoslav football. It would be part of them who would have perhaps the most prominent early examples of usage of that rule thanks to a pair of winter signings this season at the club. Chinese players Zha Zhukuan and Liu Hoguan. Both would be at the club for two years and both would actually play. Zhu Quan played 10 times in the spring of 1988 and would later become the first ever Chinese player to play in the UEFA Cup the following season. Yu Guan's time at the club would see fewer appearances, but he would eventually become China's top international goalscorer. As Heiduck, the main notoriety of this season will come in the Cup Winners' Cup against Marseille. In the first round, Heiduck would require penalties to get past Dane's Aalberg, drawing Olympique Marseille in the second round. In the first leg in France, the tie was more or less put to bed with Marseille for thrashing Heiduck 4 0. Half the full Pollywood was still rowdy in the second leg, however and in the ninth minute, smoke bombs were thrown on the pitch behind the high up goal. But as the smoke billowed across the field, it became clear that something a bit bigger was wrong. Smoke bombs contained, somewhere in them, at least one canister of concentrated tear gas, and with the gas being blown back into the stand, the affected area suddenly started to clear out and... the fans tried to escape the path of the tear gas however they could. The gas also started blowing onto the pitch, and the game had to be stopped for the safety of players who were, at this point, starting to feel the effects of tear gas. Although, rather entertainingly, if you do find footage of this incident, the Marseille players absolutely sprinted for the tunnel, Haiduk players just sort of walked and ambled towards it. So. Um, Tear gas obviously does have slightly different effects depending on your nationality in the 80s. The stands, having cleared out from the tear gas, suddenly lit up with flares and pyro, as the hardcore at the back of the stands realised they essentially had an end of polio to themselves. The scene was simply one of mass confusion as fans milled about empty space or attempted to get further away from the tear gas, or simply just waved flags and lobbed flares towards the pitch, while police attempted to restore order in a stadium that, at this point, resembled a war zone. Once the gas had dissipated, albeit to be replaced by yet more Pyro and Ballyhoo, the match restarted after a 15-minute delay. Hayduk would win on the night 2-0, but UEFA were wildly unimpressed. The match was voided and awarded 3-0 to Marseille, with Hajduk banned from Europe for two seasons, with polyud not allowed to be used in Europe for an extra season. In a sense, Heidrich were actually kind of lucky. Only two people would be hospitalized, and the fact that Polliard was only half full is perhaps all that prevented there from being a potentially much more serious situation with fans fleeing the tear gas. There will be more crowd troubles in Europe for Yugoslav clubs when we hit 1990, but by then the proverbial is colliding with the fan everywhere. And the big incident in Europe that season, Bergamo at Atlanta versus Dinamo, would be a footnote compared to the incidents going on domestically. Disciplinary issues would also blight the early stages of the European Cup, as one Portuguese side, Benfica, were put through courtesy of their opponents, Partizani Tirana, being disqualified, after having four players sent off in the first leg and their bench kicking off as well. The other Portuguese side of the competition, Holders Porto, would be drawn against Yugoslavia's representatives, the champions-slash-not-champions Fardar, and would progress with consummate ease, with a pair of 3-0 wins in both legs for the Holders. In the UEFA Cup, Albanian representatives wouldn't stoop to the depths of Partizani, but Partizan would plunge their own depth against Albania's Flamatari. After a 2-0 loss in Albania, Partizan would go 2-0 up at the JNA, before Sokol Kushta would curl one in from the edge of the box with 8 minutes to go to kill the tie. Elevs would have their own excitement in the first round, winning the first leg 5-0 courtesy of 4 from tus before their Swiss opponent Sion roared back early in the second leg to bring it to 5-3 on aggregate, which it would stay, a surprising scare given the first leg. They would depart in the second round, losing 3-2 on aggregate to Borussia Dortmund in spite of a 2-1 win in Mostar. Svjesda dropped out at the same stage, losing 5-3 on aggregate to Club Bruges after a 4-0 loss in Belgium. To end the episode, it's time to talk about one other affair that needs to be covered, not in football this time, but in the nation. In our last episode, we met Slobodan Milosevic properly for the first time, rising to prominence in the shadow of a Kosovo policy that showed the issues of trying to keep nationalism down and, as a result, eroding confidence in the state. This time, there's another affair contained in 1987 that had a similar impact in the confidence held in not just the state itself, but the system on which it was built. In doing so, we meet someone who will become a very controversial figure over the next few years, Fikret Abdić. At this point, Abdić is the director of a company called AgroKomek, a food company that employed over 13,000 workers, and as a result had turned the small town of Velika Kradusha on the border of Bosnia and Croatia into a regional economic success story. Except the actual foundation of the company's success was essentially a lie. Without getting too technical into the actual economics of the thing, because even this podcast has some limits over what we demand of our listeners, essentially the company were printing their own money. In January 1987, a fire broke out at the main Agrocomec factory, and as part of the investigation into the fire, the state security service found issues. Initially, these were issues with the safety of the plant as a fire prevention system in the plant was incomplete. And then, when they dug a little deeper, financial irregularities were found into how AgriComic had essentially given themselves a credit line to the value of $400 million. The issue was problematic. Agrocomak were a combination of too big to fail and too absolutely screwed to save. With a national inflation rate of 123%, the initial plan to save the company, of turning the debt into loans, couldn't work, as the interest rates that would have been demanded would have essentially meant the bankruptcy of any bank actually giving the loan out. It turned into a national issue in August as this plan, which had been improved by the Bosnian Republic, was essentially overturned by the Serbian Republic, which put loans back on the table through multiple banks, and Abdić getting prosecuted. But this then got further confused, as the Serbian Republic's power soon changed hands to Slobodan Milosevic, who was just about to show why he never let a good crisis go without exploiting it. Milosevic expanded the prosecutions to include Abdić's political sponsors and replace those with friendlier faces, and the Bosnian leadership was essentially cut loose with Serbia dictating what happened. The larger result was exposing corruption to the masses, much like with Schiber's round, what had happened with Agra particularly as there was plenty of rumour that the whole thing was staged so as to get rid of certain undesirables in the Bosnian leadership. Perhaps no clearer sign of the cynicism with which the whole thing was treated exists than what would happen in 1990 when Avdic would start his career in political leadership and would be elected to be part of the Bosnian presidency. From there, Avdic would have a very eventful few years, but we'll get to that in a few episodes' time, because while agri was following in on itself in Bosnia, in Slovenia, yet another fire was lit, the Slovenian spring, as it's known, is broadly a fairly unknown thing because it swiftly turns from spring into spring dependence. But while Agrocomerk was bubbling on in the background, spring 1988 saw Slovenian cynicism as to the benefits of the state turn into outright resistance for two reasons. The first it was at the start of May, with the foundation of the Slovenska Kmecha Sveta, or the Slovenian Peasants Union, which was Slovenia's first openly non-communist political party since the Kingdom era, prior to World War II. The first, but by no means the last, as alternatives to the Communist Party sprang up fairly rapidly because of the second event, the JBTZ Trial. At the end of May 1988, Slovenian journalist Janis Jansa was arrested. Now, you may have already heard of Janser, given that he is currently the actual Prime Minister of Slovenia, serving his third term, and has the rather excellent nickname of Marshal Tito, because of his social media presence, and also because he does lead his party, the SDS, with the sort of personality cult that Tito himself would have been quite proud of. Janser, at the time, was really quite annoying for the state, Slovenia was reasonably liberal, and the press had relative freedom compared to other areas of Yugoslavia. Jansa, the defence correspondent for the publication Mladina, took great joy in exposing issues with the army, most notably selling arms to some very, very, very dodgy regimes in Africa. With the army aware that Slovenia itself wasn't going to do anything about Jansa, much like with Slavko Scheiber, they took matters into their own hands. Notes from an army meeting found their way into the hands of the Medina officers and the army moved in to arrest Jansa and three others, with the trial taking place in a military court and, as such, outside of the control of the Slovenian government. In attempting to try to force Slovenia back into the fold, the army instead found themselves jumping into a hornet's nest. A campaign group and I'm really apologising for the pronunciation of this one, Odbor Zavastvo Klovekovi Pravic, or the Committee for the Defence of Human Rights, was set up to oppose the trials, and to essentially wind up the army now that Janssa was in jail and couldn't do it himself. A petition in support of the arrested got over 100,000 signatures with a peaceful protest of over 40,000 taking place in June in Ljubljana army were pressed to make the trials public and to hold the trial in Slovenia, in the Slovenian language rather than in Serbo-Croatian, neither of which the army actually did, and the army's reticence only annoyed Slovenes more. When the four were found guilty and given their sentences, however, they were sentences that were passed to the Slovenian authorities to actually put in place. As a result, the prison sentences often consisted of little more than a curfew on the guilty who were free to, more or less, do whatever they liked during the day. The result of all this was in giving Slovenes common cause. They had been shown that the state was ultimately not working in their best interests, and it was the spark for political growth in the nation. For all people had different views. The one thing everyone could agree on was that Yugoslavia wasn't really doing right by Slovenia. Within two years, Slovenia will be having multi-party elections. Janis Janca had accidentally become the lightning rod that would begin the independence of a nation. Next time on the History of Yourself podcast, it's time to talk about Vojvodina. Because for the next two full Yugoslav episodes. Revolution will play out there. Scheibers in football and Milosevic's on the streets. Thank you very much for listening. As always, please do leave your reviews, tweet, Facebook, whatever social presence you have to share. It's all very much appreciated. Um, as, as always, made clear on this podcast, I am terrible at self-promotion. So um, please feel free to do it for me. Um, The schedule for the next three episodes, just to let you know, is that it is going to be, uh, next episode will be very much purely football. The episode after that is going to be a special one on Albania. And then the episode after that will be purely politics, but all sort of in the Voivodina issue as hinted a few seconds ago. Um, So thank you very much for listening and I will catch you next time.